Hello, everyone. Welcome. Um, thank you all for joining us to uh, what is the second webinar in the new Arab uh, webinar series. For all those who have not joined us previously, uh, please join the uh, hashtag on Twitter, the new Arab webinar, webinar um, for the following discussion on annexation. So this time our focus will be on the spectre of annexation uh, 72 years after the Nakba. For anyone who doesn't know, the New Arab is a progressive and diverse London-based news organization covering the Mona region with a focus on democratic transition, human rights and social and economic justice. My name is Malia Bouatia and I will be chairing the panel this evening. We're excited uh, to be hosting our distinguished guests, Suhaid Bishara and Abdelhamid Siyem, both specialists uh, on the subject of annexation, but each with a particular insight and experience. As we mark uh, 72 years since the Nakba, the Palestinians' ongoing catastrophe when 750,000 people were ethnically cleansed from Palestine, and nearly 500 villages destroyed. We also reflect on the response to the ongoing process of Palestinian dispossession and Israeli colonization, particularly uh, in the face of the Trump administration's deal of the century. The Netanyahu Gantz uh, unity government has made it clear that further annexation of settlement blocks is now very much on the table um, and has its sights set on intensifying its formal control of the Jordan Valley. In fact, proposals are set to be put before the uh, Knesset on the 1st of July of this year. The complicity of international players like the US, uh, whose Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, declared that when it comes to annexation, the Israelis will ultimately make those decisions. In addition uh, to a strengthened newly formed Israeli government and the lack of international outcry, the task of resistance and solidarity is enormous and necessary now more than ever. In light of all this and more, uh, we'll now hand over the virtual platform to our speakers. Firstly, we'll be hearing from uh, Suhaid Bishara, who is uh, the director of the Land and Planning Unit uh, at Adela, the legal center for the Arab minority rights in Israel. Uh, she served as lead lawyer in landmark international humanitarian law cases concerning Palestinians in the 1967 occupied territory and constitutional um, human rights cases regarding Palestinian citizens of Israel before the Israeli Supreme Court. She's also uh, a PhD candidate at uh, the King's College School of Law in London. Thank you, Sahad. Apologies. Thank you, Maria. Uh, and thank you for uh, inviting me to speak uh, at this uh, important uh, platform. Um, I have uh, uh, basically three comments uh, on the topic of the webinar. Um, and I will try to be brief and uh, stick to the time, uh, 10 minutes uh, time frame uh, that I've been uh, given. Uh, my first comment um, is a general framework 
of uh, what is happening in the West Bank um, up until uh, recent years, and then I will address uh, developments on, on the matter. Uh, over the years, basically, Israel uh, has managed to maintain uh, both uh, problematic political practices on the ground in the OPTs, uh, such as uh, building settlements, exploiting natural resources, violating rights of Palestinians to property, to life, and many other violations. It's a long list, as, as most probably a lot of people who are familiar uh, uh, with, with the case uh, uh, know. Um, at the same time, uh, so far until recently, Israel has maintained a legal paradigm and discourse that does not clash with the international recognized status of the West Bank as occupied territories, meaning uh, that uh, Israel has uh, been governing the OPT under the concept of belligerent occupation based on international humanitarian uh, law, except of course for the case of the East Jerusalem, which was illegally annexed uh, and became under Israeli sovereignty against international law and violation of international law, uh, um, UN uh, condemned uh, the annexation and the ICJ advisory opinion has stated that this did not change the status of East Jerusalem as occupied territory. Uh, again, while maintaining the systematic violations uh, almost in all aspects of international law. Uh, Keeping that for a long time, uh, in recent uh, years and following a very clear political Israeli Zionist perception, we have seen a shift in the Israeli legal discourse and its legal framing concerning the status of the settlements and the OPTs uh, in general, which uh, started uh, in, the, in the past two decades, but in more uh, accelerating way we have seen a shift in 2017 uh, while the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, has enacted something known as the validation law, uh, which basically it's an Israeli parliament law that's valid in the occupied territories for the first time uh, since the history of 67 occupation, uh, and basically targets, uh, basically tries to retroactively validate settlements that were illegally built on Palestinian private land compared to public Palestinian lands in, in the OPT. Now, the law adopts a totally new legal concept that we have not witnessed up until uh, that uh, moment. In a petition that we filed against the law, the government of Israel uh, stated uh, its position very clearly that uh, Israel uh, uh, Israeli Knesset has full authority and sovereignty to enact laws valid in the West Bank, uh, that the West Bank is conceptually and thus legally part of what's known as uh, the historic land uh, of Israel, that's of course a, a mandatory uh, Palestine, uh, and that Jewish people has, have uh, the natural right to reside uh, all over uh, the area, uh, compared to that, the Attorney General stick to the international humanitarian law, and there was a huge discussion 
uh, uh, with the government uh, along uh, these lines, not in the logic of settlements, not in the logic of which is why the settlements, but the legal way uh, uh, to do that and to maneuver uh, through legitimizing such uh, uh, internationally illegal acts. And then in 2018, we have a all witness the enactment of the basic law uh, of Israel as a Jewish nation state, uh, which has uh, a constitutional status. It's, it's, it's basically part of the Israeli uh, constitutional uh, framework, and it gives a constitutional, uh, further constitutional framework uh, uh, that allows uh, annexation. How? Uh, it states as a principle uh, that the land of Israel, again, historic Palestine, is the homeland of the Jewish people. It says that Jewish settlement is a constitutional uh, value, and of course, a Jewish uh, cultural uh, supremacy. Now, all of these uh, shifts um, are uh, basically framed under guiding principles uh, that we can uh, outline very uh, briefly uh, uh, as the following. First, like only the Jewish people have the right to self-determination in the area. And when I say the area, that means historic uh, Palestine. This is one of the main principle guidelines following these uh, legal changing in, in Israel. Uh, Palestinians are not people entitled for a state based on the UN Charter. Uh, thus, the Palestinians are a problem that needs to be managed, preferably under Israeli law uh, or any other legal framework that Israel uh, decides and chooses upon, and definitely a political framework that Israeli uh, authorities see as, as fit. Uh, and and uh, if we recall, these are the same basically guidelines uh, and principles that Netanyahu Trump plan uh, has uh, drawn in the what's known the deal of the century, no Palestinian right to self-determination in a full sovereign state with uh, territorial integrity. Uh, Palestinians will get uh, for the most uh, self-governing uh, enclaves. The whole area will remain under effective Israeli military control, bypass roads, no right of return for the Palestinian people, segregation and demographic uh, engineering, uh, which is basically a normalization of the illegitimate, illegitimate political and territorial control uh, of the occupied area and the Palestinian uh, people. And of course, as, as you mentioned, Mandia, this followed by the coalition agreement that was signed in late April between the Likud and Blue and White uh, parties, which set annexation as an important and urgent matter to be pursued uh, this summer. Now, based on our past experiences, uh, a few legal scenarios are possible to find to finalize and formalize the annexation. Uh, one format could be adopting again what uh, has been done previously in East Jerusalem, uh, putting uh, the area under full sovereignty of Israel, then declared as the capital of, of Israel in a basic law. Uh, and we have the form of uh, what happened in the Syrian occupied Golan Heights, which basically uh, validating the Israeli uh, 
more in the area. And of course, there could be other uh, uh, forms that would be uh, developed. Now, uh, my second comment is the effect of such formal uh, annexation. And of course, I'm aware that many say, and rightly so, that de facto annexation is already happening on the ground for many years. Uh, in terms of settlement, uh, Israeli control of every aspect of what's happening in the West Bank and so on. Uh, but still, I think as we have witnessed um, in East Jerusalem and again in, in the Grand Heights and in 48, as citizens, as residents, as refugees, formal annexation would change a lot on the ground, conceptually, legally, and in the way uh, Israel can uh, handle uh, the area. Obviously, we're talking about full Israeli uh, sovereignty as a Jewish state, which is very uh, important, which means applicability of Israeli law, law uh, no more to justify actions uh, from security perspective based on international humanitarian law. And this will give Israel a huge tool to grab in, in terms of what they have so far in Israeli laws, to grab land, to engage uh, more intensively in demographic engineering, uh, as, as we have seen happening in Israel since 1948, uh, during, after the Nakba, handling the issue of the refugees, their properties, the arbitrary confiscations, uh, uh, the, the revocation of residency and citizenship, uh, and so back and so forth. Um, now, having said that, and this would be my last uh, comment. Uh, now, even before these recent developments that we are witnessing, we have enough indications, as, as I mentioned, and evidence to realize clearly uh, where Israel is heading, even without you know, the, the drama of a formal uh, uh, annexation where Israel clearly declare, declares uh, its sovereignty on parts of, of the West Bank. Um, although one would expect it to come, you know, following the history of the Israeli uh, policies since the Nakba through 67 and the developments that followed Oslo Agreement and so on. But still, I think the current discussion is very important because it sheds light on what uh, has been going on uh, for years uh, in the meaning that even if an actual formal annexation does not take place uh, eventually uh, and based on our experience uh, in terms of you know, ge geodemographic changes, the conceptual framework within which Israel has uh, governed the OPT and the Palestinian uh, people uh, and its expansionist, sorry, territoriality, uh, this should uh, trigger more discussions about, you know, free reframing basically and probably reconceptualizing our observation and analysis on uh, what is the current situation and what are the current threats uh, in Israel and occupied territories and generally vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Palestinian people including the need, since we are talking about the annexation, including the need to rethink how we define annexation uh, and try to challenge uh, the formalistic conception 
uh, on that uh, matter, a process that has started gradually in recent years and should definitely uh, continue. I think I will stop here and then maybe elaborate more issues during the Q&A. Thank you, Sahad. Um, that was incredibly interesting. Um, I was wondering, you know, taking full privilege of the fact that I'm chairing here, um, how likely it is um, that Israel will be able to implement the plans um, and what the response to that may be on the ground from, Palest from Palestinians? Uh, basically, since the coalition agreement has been uh, signed, uh, we have seen um, uh, a lot of discussion on many levels, uh, internally Palestinian-wise, within the Palestinians in Israel, OPT, uh, Gaza, and uh, internationally, definitely in Europe, of course, um, definitely not, not the U.S. administration, which is just fully uh, behind uh, uh, this move. Um, and it seems that there has been uh, a lot of uh, pressure and still uh, continuing on Israel to deter it from uh, its move. Uh, and it's also creating internal discussions within the Israeli political uh, arena whether that would bring to a shift in the decision uh, to annex or not, I doubt that. It might affect the timing, it might affect the formation of the annexation, uh, but I think uh, we're, uh, we already started uh, witnessing a shift in the concept of Israeli and how it sees the occupied territory. I think it will continue and the question is how long it will take, which form it will take, uh, and, and so on. Uh, and, and again, we have witnessed in the past annexation in East Jerusalem that uh, did not uh, really bring to any meaningful international uh, uh, movement and pressure to deter Israel from that. Of course, now we are talking about uh, you know, different international uh, politics, the, uh, a new uh, uh, perspective on international law, but I really doubt that something will really dramatic happen to uh, make a dramatic change in the Israeli policies. Thank you. Next, we have uh, our second speaker, um, Dr. Abdelhamid Siyam, who is uh, a professor of political science uh, and Middle Eastern studies at uh, Rutgers University, uh, the State University of New Jersey since 2007. He's worked for the United Nations uh, for over 25 years as political affairs officer, information officer at the office of the uh, spokesman for the Secretary General, spokesman for the UN mission in Western Sahara, Pakistan and Afghanistan, Iraq and Chief of Radio and News Center at the Department of Public Information. Um, CM is also a, a freelance consultant uh, for the UNFPA and the ILO on media communications and population. Over to you, Doctor. 
Thank you so much, Maliya. Thank you, Suhad, for sharing this panel with you. I'm very proud to be part of this important panel. Uh, I want to say that from the beginning that international law is not a la carte, as the German ambassador said. It's not pick and choose. It's a body of instruments that should be taken as a whole. All those instruments, all those conventions, agreements, accords, uh, resolutions, uh, declarations, uh, charter, they come all together to be what we call international law. They have been debated, they have been discussed, they have been amended, and finally they have been accepted by the international com community, and they went into force. And in, normally there is time between signing and going into force. So they come together to, to uh, control people's and states' behavior. I look at international law as just like a traffic signs in a busy intersection. So everyone should observe these signs. And if anyone does not, he or she would crash into others hurt others and maybe hurt him or herself. So that's why these international laws are the, the road sign that telling countries how to behave. In, in fact, there are many uh, leaders and many states did not behave according to international law. So there, there are measures to uh, impose some punitive measures against those violators. There is a system. If you don't follow international law, there should be a price to pay. And there is two chapters to deal with that in the UN Charter, Chapter 6 and Chapter 7. It happened in the past. Violators normally punished. can give you many examples from Milosevic in Serbia to many uh, ruthless dictators in Africa, Charles Taylor, um, Senko in Sierra Leone, in Uganda, in uh, uh, Iraq, when Iraq occupied Kuwait, there had been a parcel of punishment. As we speak, there are some sanctions imposed on many countries, from Congo to uh, Iraq to Iran to North Korea, for example, North Korea. There is a package of UN resolution to punish North Korea because they are not abiding by international law. Exception to the rule, there is one state only in the UN history that has not been punished. And at the same time, it has been in violation of every aspect of international law. Of course, it takes time for me to explain, but I have to pick and choose because we have a very uh, time limit on this uh, uh, encounter. So I'll try to just to mention a few and maybe the question and answer will cover things that I don't, uh, I don't mention. First, Israel is in violation of the UN Charter. Article 25 of the UN Charter states that countries who join the UN, members of the UN, should accept and carry out Security Council resolutions. And we can talk now about so many resolutions. We're not talking about uh, 
one or two or five or 10, so many Security Council resolutions, let alone the GA, the General Assembly. But let me just give you examples. I mean, the last resolution was 2334, which was adopted in December 2016 about settlement and about Jerusalem and about uh, Israeli abiding with, uh, by international law regarding the changing the demographic and uh, cultural aspect of Jerusalem. There's so many details in that resolution. There are many re- resolutions about Jerusalem, which have been adopted so many times. I mean, resolution 251 was adopted in 1968. Resolution 271 was adopted after burning the Al-Aqsa Mosque in 1969. Two important resolutions were adopted when Israel passed their basic law in 1980, Resolution 476-478. And there are many other resolutions, settlement, there are many resolutions on the wall, uh, other resolutions on the natural resources. So there is a body of resolution. It's not because as Israel claimed that it's being targeted by so many resolutions. It's simply because it is being occupying a land that it doesn't belong to it. As long as occupation is maintained, as long as international community will come back to the same issue, pass resolutions. That is what the international community uh, had in its uh, disposal as a weapon to punish the violator of international law. Uh, I'll go to another important instrument that uh, we can judge Israel to that instrument, which is the Four Geneva Convention which was adopted in 1949, which had to deal with the behavior of the occupier in occupied territories. And there's so many details in it. So I don't want to go into that, but between Article 49 and 78, it deals directly with occupation. And every item, it applies to Palestinian people under occupation. From like uh, moving part of their population to the occupied territories and the other way around to building settlement to destruction. Article 53 of this, it talks about destruction of property, which is Israel does that on daily basis. So uh, this instrument, the UN has been going back again and again to it. And in 1993, in fact, the UN General Assembly and the Security Council endorsed the idea that the Four Geneva Convention is becoming a normative law, which makes it obligatory. It makes its implementation an obligation in all states. And Israel is a member of the uh, Four Geneva Convention. I, I'm not talking even about other convention that Israel did not join. I'm talking about this convention, which Israel joined. Yeah. That is, I strongly recommend that people will review the Four Geneva Convention, especially Articles 49, talking about uh, the settlers and the settlement and settling the land that doesn't belong to them. Occupation itself is a crime against a human itself and a a war crime, occupation. Because Four Geneva Convention deals with occupation as something temporary. And they tell the occupier how to behave regarding these civilians. So they don't expect that uh, occupation will go on and on and on. And what Israel is now trying to convince the world, it is not occupation and the occupied land, it is not occupied land. That is what is, in fact, that's what the basic law uh, said. And when they passed that 
citizenship resolution. They made settlement, as my colleague Sohad said exactly, it's a Jewish value. That means they not only endorse settlement, but they encourage it because it's a Jewish value. You have to be to live up to your uh, Jewish values and go and settle in the uh, occupied Palestinian territories. I could talk about the con other conventions. For example, the Convention of 1951 about refugees, Israel in violation of that. I mean, the UN had at least 45 times emphasized the right of the Palestinian to return, which has not been implemented. Even those who were displaced after 67 war, there's a resolution 237 also calling for those uh, displaced in 1967 war to go back to their homes. And another important convention, which is I would like also to mention, because uh, as we said, there's so many to talk about, is the 1965 convention on, this, on elimination of all forms of uh, racism and, uh, and discrimination. And, it, and clearly it shows that Israel is in violation of this agreement, which is Israel also part of it. When the Palestinians are treated as second-class citizens, when they are not given their full uh, rights, and there is a, a major discrimination based on ethnicity, religion, vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian, then Israel in violation of that agreement. Another important uh, Agree, uh, agreement that Israel is in violation of is the right of the child, the 1989 Convention on the Right of the Child. Probably the only country in the world that has martial law, that military, military court, to try children in these courts that doesn't exist anywhere in the world. And if you look at how Israel treats the Palestinian children vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli children, so a child for Israel, for Israel in Israel is 18, but a child for Palestinian is 16. After 16, they go, they treated as, and they tried as, as, as adults, not as children. And that is, it doesn't exist anywhere in the world. Another issue that is, uh, I could talk about the blockade of Gaza. And that brings us to some major and international uh, instruments. For example, the collective punishment is a crime against humanity. Collective punishment, which is used day in, day out in Gaza. When you put 2.2 million under uh, complete blockade from land, sea, and air for so many years, restricting their movement, restricting their uh, freedom to choose and to travel and to study and to to live their full life of, uh, under good health condition, all of these fall into the idea of collective punishment, which is a crime against humanity. And on I that, know, on that I, point, uh, I, would, I, I actually wanted to, I was wondering that given the continued violations and Israel effectively being able to get away with it, is there any space of accountability? Can we ever hope for accountability? Do we expect anyone to be tried at the Hague for some of these uh, the vi these violations? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think there is a hope. Maybe it's a little hope, but there is. Once Palestine was admitted as a member state, 
as although its status in the UN as an observer, it was able to join so many instruments, including the ICC, the International Criminal Court. And the Palestinians, although they were deterred to submit complaint against Israel for some time, believing that negotiation might bring something. But finally, they put three complaints. I mean, they are now trying to try Israel on three accounts. First, the settlement. And second, the treatment of prisoners, of Palestinian prisoners, and moving them to the Israeli proper. And third, the attacks on civilians in, in Gaza wars, uh, 2829, I mean, 2008-2009 war, and 2012, and 2014, and now after debating that by the IC, uh, by ICC itself, in last December they decided they have a case now. The Palestinian could go on and uh, submit their cases, and now the prosecutor passed a recent resolution. They will start receiving those complaints from the individuals in Gaza. Uh, of course, there are some Palestinians, you could say, also committed some uh, violation of international law. They should not be also, should not be protected. But if ICC is, ICC is not subject to so much international political pressure, which is we see it now by the U.S., the U.S. is threatening those members of the ICC. They are confiscated their visa. They cannot come to the U.S. They even... They're even threatening with severe punishment if they uh, try, try to put any Israeli on trial. However, the ICC should continue to do its job neutrally and objectively. Otherwise, it will lose its uh, status completely. So there is a little hope. I know it might take time. But I mean, just two days ago or three days ago, one of the war criminals in Rwanda was at large, was arrested recently. So that sometimes we could hope for uh, an accountability with those who committed war crimes and crimes against humanity. Thank you, Doctor. Uh, we've got quite a few questions that have come in uh, from those watching. Uh, I'll start off with one directed at Suhaid. Um, is one state uh, more likely, uh, and if so, should Palestinians unite behind uh, the one-state platform? Okay, the, the question of, of the one-state, uh, well, it's a tricky one. Uh, as much as many liberals would like to see a liberal democratic state uh, containing uh, everyone living in the area, in a constitutional framework that grants human rights and constitutional rights for everyone, uh, regardless of their ethnicity, uh, race, color, and so on. Uh, realistically speaking, um, it's hard for me to see that happening. Uh, as, again, as much as many people would want that to happen, and I'm aware, of course, that there are many discussions uh, within the Palestinians, within the Israeli uh, activists, uh, along that. The reality on the ground is very clear. You have a Jewish state uh, controlling part of 
historic Palestine. Uh, and you have a occupied territory since 1967, where you have a de facto the foreign control of Israel on the Palestinian people and uh, on the Palestinian uh, territory. Some would call it colonial, some would call it uh, apartheid, regardless of the name. Um, taking this uh, reality and moving it to a, a one full democratic liberal state, it's a huge jump. Uh, and then, so what, what would Palestinian resistance therefore look like in the face of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean it's, I don't want to put myself in the position of a politician. I'm a human rights activist and I'm a human rights uh, lawyer. And uh, uh, for me, uh, I would say that any solution that grants all of the Palestinians and all of those living in the area their full rights as individuals, their human rights as individuals and as groups should be uh, uh, just. Now, regardless of the political setting, that, that one, two, federation, confederation, or whatever, yeah? As long as everyone is granted their full rights, including the Palestinian refugees, of course, that would be a just solution. Thank you. I think this is a particularly important question in light of the PA's current role um, in questions of um, them being dissolved um, in light of, of the current plans, particularly as uh, the US announced its US Peace to Prosperity Project. Um, the response has obviously not been taken um, as, as being adequate or radical enough. Um, I wonder if uh, Dr. Abdel Hamid, you could uh, comment on your views on the, the US context, uh, if certain officials are, are um, predicting that Israel will annex around 30 to 40% of the occupied West Bank, uh, including all of uh, occupied uh, East Jerusalem, what opposition is there a room for opposition on that front do you expect biden um to be that opposition i mean the, the bargain of the century as introduced by uh, president trump has been implemented on the ground from the day he came to the to office i mean they were proportionally implementing slices of it started with Jerusalem, started with moving the embassy, closing the uh, Palestinian office in Washington, uh, stopped uh, funding the PA and UNRWA, and that led to the package, which uh, it's a literary uh, a, a document for the Palestinian to sign their surrender completely. It gives Israel everything and gives the Palestinian just places to live as second-class citizens in Bantustan, just like South Africa, disconnected with each other except through tunnels and maybe some roads. And 
it gives Israel the supreme power on security. So they will, even if, even if you call it a state, still the security is in the hand of Israel. So no Palestinian would accept that. And there are international uh, support for the Palestinian not to accept this plan. However, there are a few exceptions. And I don't think the Palestinian would uh, bet on a new administration, the White House. It might not be as, uh, as bold as the Trump administration in their support, un un uh, unlimited support of Israel. But again, Biden is another, somebody he calls himself, I am, you don't need to be a Jew to be a Zionist. He supports Israel also without any reservation. He's been throughout his political history known to be a close friend of Israel. I mean, they try now maybe in a year of uh, election, maybe try to put some nice face to bring some more middle class and some communities and minorities to its support. But as I, far as I know, I mean, the Palestinians put a, a letter and they addressed it to one of his aides and they say, we want to support you, but we want you to, if you look at these conditions, we'd like to have with you to have discussion about it. And of course he did not accept. The only thing maybe he would re think is the annexation, the annexation. But he said he will not bring the embassy back to Tel Aviv, for example. He said that. But maybe the annexation, he might ask Israel to delay it or maybe to start some kind of negotiation with the Palestinians. But I don't bet on any American administration from Truman until today that not one single Israeli Admins, uh, sorry, American administration that did not support Israel. There was one exception in 1956 with Eisenhower, it's not because he didn't support Israel, but because they went too far with their trilateral aggression on Egypt and Suez Canal in 1956. But again, uh, what will change the uh, fabric of the whole issue is the Palestinian uh, steadfastness and resisting with the means they have under their disposal to this plan and to occupation itself and continue with their plan to seek an independent Palestinian state and the occupied territories that was occupied in June 2000, uh, 1967, June 4. At least that is the majority of the Palestinian, except some Palestinian now, they said we, will, we have to seek a one state solution, but that is too far uh, of a dream to believe in uh, as we speak. Well, given the hopelessness of the US front and all future administrations, who can we depend on on an international platform? Do we expect Europe um, to be a sort of ally given the, con con the, the condemnations that have um, that have already been sent out by some European nations over the question of annexation. Um, one, of, uh, one of the viewers has actually asked about whether we should even have faith in international law and universal declarations uh, whilst they were all written uh, and drafted in Western bubbles to suit Western ways of achieving justice. Why do we need to abide by those that do not even take our cultures 
politics and histories into account. Can we depend on anyone at this point on an international? Um, no, I, I agree. I mean, we shouldn't, we should not depend on them. But international law, it's good to be on your side. Why are you struggling? I mean, it is, it will give you power. It will give you convincing argument if international law on your side. So like South Africa, when they were struggling for one state, one equal citizenship and uh, equal rights in South Africa. They were not calling to destroy the white minority at all. The international world was on their side and they found support outside. The Palestinians are the same. I mean, BDS, for example, is an international movement supporting the same thing they supported in South Africa. In fact, those who started the BDS copied exactly the same program that the South African uh, freedom fighters put together as for international support movement. It's almost carbon copy. However, now when, when in the US, if you support BDS, you will be accused of anti-Semitism, which is really a ridiculous accusation. We shouldn't uh, depend on European support, but also now the Palestinians are very disappointed to see the Arab support is fragmented and collapsing. And also the Palestinian people is also disappointed to see the Palestinians themselves are not united around one single program. And you have not only geographical uh, division, but also political division between Gaza and, and the West Bank. So the, these things might make the struggle of the Palestinian a little bit harder. However, uh, taking into account all this experience of the Palestinian people for the last hundred years, they, they didn't give up, they didn't surrender, they did not accept any capitulation, and they will not. And the more you put pressure on them, the more likely they will revolt. The Palestinian people are uh, an indigenous people in the area. They did not come from outside. They did not land in a parachute. This is their land. This is the land of their fathers and grand grandfathers. So if they accepted with all that clear right, if they accepted Israel to, uh, to live in 78% of Palestine, at least they have the right to continue struggling to live in their own independent, contiguous, viable Palestinian sovereignty. Thank you, Doctor. Um, another question from the floor directed at uh, both speakers, but I'll ask Sohad uh, to uh, respond to. Do you expect Palestinian uh, President Mahmoud Abbas to follow through with his announcement to end all agreements with the US and Israel? And if he does, wouldn't he harm the Palestinians more than Israel? Yeah, I'm, uh, I want to be clear. I'm not in a position, and I think uh, none of us, uh, to tell uh, Mahmoud Abbas uh, what to do. Um, although we do expect a meaningful reaction because uh, acceleration in the Israeli policies, announcements, and clear intention clearly uh, entails an internal Palestinian discussion vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, what's happening 
vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the frameworks that should be addressed, vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the meaning of such developments on the issue of the Palestinian and the Palestinian right to self-determination, including the Palestinian, uh, the right of return for the Palestinian uh, uh, refugees. Uh, and I want to uh, address also in a very short two sentences the issue of the international, um, which is also tied to what uh, President Mahmoud Abbas uh, will be doing most probably. I, d I don't think it's possible to engage in any liberation uh, aspect of any people, including the Palestinian people, without referring to international law. As much as there are criticisms, there is criticism about international law and its framing in many aspects of it. Yeah. Still, the right to self-determination and human rights for the Palestinian people as individuals and as people is drawn from international law. So it's a tool that we cannot give up. It's not only a tool that we cannot give up. It's an important and essential tool to continue struggling for rights. Uh, and again, and, and Dr. Siam has enumerated many international legal frameworks that uh, uh, should uh, stand. Now, again, I'm, I'm not saying that the international law is uh, ideal framework. I am not saying that uh, there is a total uh, disconnection between law, including international law, and politics, including international politics, um, including international tribunals. But still, uh, between that and between criticizing and between trying to challenge existing frameworks and to drop that out, I think we would uh, end up with nothing eventually. Thank you, Sahad. Um, another question directed to you. Um, the, does the nation state law um, facilitate colonization um, that facilitates uh, colonization? Uh, is it likely to be in full throttle if annexation goes ahead? mentioned the uh, Jewish nation-state basic law is um, in, in the hierarchy of law, it's, it's uh, within a status of constitution, uh, meaning it has a constitutional normative framework that will affect uh, the administrative decision-making by the government administer. It will affect uh, exist the interpretation of existing laws and it will interpret and affect uh, future laws that will be enacted in the Knesset. Now, uh, declaring in the basic law uh, the land of Israel, the historic mandatory Palestine, uh, as the historic homeland of the Jewish people will have an effect and it will facilitate the future annexation and any legal framework uh, that Israel uh, decides uh, to adopt. Like when we petitioned against the validation law, one of the claims or one of the discussions that it raised that Israel has, uh, the Israeli uh, parliament, an actor has no authority to enact extraterritorial. 
outside the recognized territory of Israel, which is uh, the ceasefire agreement of 1949. And part of resolving this issue is the basic law, because it's a constitution. It sets a principal constitutional framework that uh, 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 Israel perceives in the whole area, including Israel and the 67 occupied uh, territories, and it will be the constitutional framework that will enable and facilitate uh, any legal uh, actions taken by Israel to pursue uh, the annexation uh, in the future. Thank you. I don't know if you had any contributions to that, Dr. Abdelhamid. She said that eloquently, and I will, I will reserve my uh, right to make more comments on issues that I am familiar with, especially with international law. In light of that, um, we probably have time uh, for one more question. Um, and I think that for the international audience watching, um, feeling somewhat dismayed and in despair um, over the future, um, what messages you may have about what the next what the next steps should be around responding um, to the expected annexation, continued annexation. And foremost, some strong, solid, uh, cohesive uh, plan of action by the Palestinian leadership. I heard the speech of Mahmoud Abbas, and I was not very impressed by it, honestly. He did not mention one word about the unification of the Palestinian people. He did not mention Gaza. He did not mention any form of resistance, which is, I'm not talking about resistance by using arms at all. I'm using, I'm speaking about legal means within the Palestinian disposal to resist peacefully and legally, to change the equation. Unless occupation becomes costly to Israel, then why do they have to give it up? Why? There is no reason. International law and international community will support the Palestinians if they are struggling for self-determination within acceptable norms and means. They don't support them if they go into like hijacking a bus or a plane and, uh, and destroy it. They don't. But they do struggle, they do support Palestinians when they go into resisting occupation. Occupation itself is the highest form of war crime. It lasted too much and the Palestinians been resisting and they will continue to resist. But they need to put their uh, act together. They need to unify their ranks. They need to reach out to the peoples in the Arab world, not to the governments, because the governments are failing them. They need to expand on their solidarity and, and support for other national movement and grassroots movement who seek uh, justice. And they have to 
not to shy away from supporting BDS, and they need to reach out also to the, uh, their Muslim brothers and their uh, non-aligned movement. But these all put them together. They will not liberate one inch of Palestine unless the Palestinians themselves take the lead and they unify around one single program, one single goal. They put the Palestinian people behind them and be, be determined to achieve this goal. I think they will not, they will not, they shouldn't expect that the international community will do the job for them. Thank you. Uh, Suhaid? Yeah, um, and I, I definitely think uh, there are, uh, I mean, there's still space for up the international legal struggle uh, for uh, uh, a Palestinian state. Um, uh, one example, and I will not elaborate much, I mean, the special, Professor Ling, the special reporter uh, on uh, the human rights situation in, in the Palestinian occupied territories in his report in uh, October 2017, if I'm recalling um, the right date, has uh, issued a report where basically he uh, said that based on the accumulation of and gravity and massiveness of the violation of international human rights and international humanitarian law by Israel in the occupied territories against the Palestinian people uh, and the continuation of these violations and the systematic uh, system of violation. Uh, uh, and uh, Dr. Siam touched upon this uh, a little bit in his talk. He said, uh, we should uh, seek uh, legal uh, discourse to declare the occupation as such as uh, illegal. Uh, and of course, there is the ongoing procedures with the ICC that we still don't know how it will end. But uh, there is uh, a lot of uh, space still to exhaust within the international law, uh, including the UN, um, and international law discourse, and definitely lobbying, uh, especially the European uh, Parliament and the European states uh, on the side, on the right side of, of this uh, formation. Thank you very much. And on that note, um, I want to thank you both for joining us uh, this evening. Thank you to the New Arab for hosting us and creating such an important platform for such a crucial discussion, particularly in light of the recent commemorations of the Nakba. This is but a continuation um, of that catastrophe. And it is, and it is our duty, particularly uh, as uh, international spectators, to um, the violation of these, um, of human rights um, to act uh, and to be in solidarity. Um, thank you both for joining us. Um, to all those watching, keep up to date with um, upcoming webinars uh, via the New Arab, which can be found across all social media platforms. Thank you very much. Thank you.